Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 97, Religious Villains. Recorded Thursday, October 20th of 2016, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. Peter, what's up? Oh, you know, just the usual. Sitting here recording a podcast, because this is the thing I do every other week with you. All right, good talk. <laughs> in, in all seriousness, not a whole lot of interesting stuff is going on in my, in my life at the moment. It's very much just kind of continuation of the same work, school, etc., etc. How about you? You know, a fair bit, mostly on the gaming front, actually, which is pretty cool. Well, our D&D game continues to go well. It does. I'm panicking about mapping, but I always panic about mapping. I panic about everything. But cool news, our Pugmire game wrapped up yesterday. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that was really good. Had this great underground battle against ants that were poisonous and dug their way out of walls to attack us and all sorts of fun things. It was pretty solid. Wow, cool. Yeah, it was a big set-piece battle. We got to use Roll20, which was a lot of fun. I'd never actually used it for gaming before, so... Hmm. Yeah, it worked out very well. We're going to do another Pugmire mini-campaign arc, if you will, and I'm looking forward to that. But in between those, I will be running Inspectors. Nice. Yeah, for eight people. Not so nice. I'm terrified. (laughs) As well you should be. (laughs) I'm pretty sure the system is designed for a maximum of five, and that's including the GM. It's going to be a little insane. So you are 60% over, you know, (laughs) the gauges are redlining. Yes, I am 60% over budget. People will have to be jettisoned. No, I'm not (laughs) jettisoning any of them. I do have an idea for what we're going to do, though. Most of us are friends from school, from college. Okay. So I think what I'm going to do is do paranormal pest control at Furman University. Oh, all right. So I will kind of give everyone a chance to rampage through the old dining hall and the old dorm rooms that they all lived in and run around the lake chasing vampires or whatever it is, you know. Let them have fun in an environment that they mentally know and have emotional connections to. So you are going to be able to mix tabletop RPGs with nostalgia and shared friendship memory. Well done! Even just coming up with it on the conceptual level is... Yeah, but you know, honestly, anybody who runs like a G.I. Joe game does the same thing, so let's not give me too much credit. Well, that's fair, but I don't know. That's uh, that's a shared space. I mean, that's at least somewhat unique. Yeah, I suppose so. A couple other notes real quick. First, we're going to be talking about religious villains tonight, and I'm excited about that. Before we get to that, I have a much more serious thing that I want to talk to everyone about. Peter and I want to put out a call for certain kinds of stories from our listeners. We're looking for stories of people being othered, if you will, at the gaming table, at conventions, generally in the hobby. I want to kind of keep it related to gaming, since that's our thing. If it can be your story, that would be best, because we do not want to put words into your mouth. We want to hear it straight from you, if at all possible. Uh, You know, we'll happily read off an email. If you want to keep it anonymous, totally fine. I understand. But I want it to be personal experiences and not, I heard about this one case, right? Because I think those are more powerful. 
Peter and I are going to be doing an episode, at least one episode, on dealing with this problem of inclusion and exclusion in our hobby. We're not exactly sure when, but we're going to be dealing with it. This is something that has been a conversation Peter and I have had with each other, with previous hosts, Brandon and Mike, with other guests that we've had on. Yeah, Mike Perna, Derek White. Yeah, when we had him on first, we were talking about gatekeeping. If you want to send it in as an email, totally fine. If you want to make it anonymous, best thing to do is send it to us through our contact page on our website. Go to stgcast.org. There's a contact us link at the top in the menu. If you want to send us audio or even video, that's totally fine too. I will make that work. But I want to hear these stories and I want to be able to collect those for people. It's something that we have struggled with. It's something that we as Christians should not abide. And I honestly am a little embarrassed personally that I have not done a good job dealing with it myself. I want to change that. Yeah, we have... We have a megaphone, however small, so I think it's time that we called attention to this particular topic, and the first step of that is going to be collecting your stories. And I don't know that it's necessarily even calling attention to it. I think it's, here are stories, now let's talk about how to take positive action about it. Yeah. And that's the goal. So I I want to hear those, I want to collect those, so that we have something to talk about and we can frame this properly. Uh, Because unfortunately, Peter and I are two straight white Christian men living in the United States of America. Heck, we're even middle-aged. We're both in our 30s. Middle-aged, middle-class men. Yep. We don't get othered very much. No. It helps to get those voices out, in part because we often don't leave room for those voices. Yeah. All right. So on that kind of sobering note, we do need to move on to the bulk of our episode here. We do. And we have a Patreon question that we need to roll for. If you back us on Patreon, patreon.com slash saving the game, of course, you get a chance to ask us a question and we roll on a table, see what comes up. Shall we? Let's do it. All righty, here we go. Jim, Jim Namban, regular contributor here. We hear advice about players behaving badly plenty, like episode 11, and it's great. But what are some ways we can praise good player behavior without alienating the others? Group reward or acknowledgement, maybe? I'm not sure, but the concept seems quite Christian, so it would be worthy of your show. Yeah, good question, Jim. Yeah. So I've seen this tried a couple of ways mechanically, which is interesting. Have you ever had a game where there's a mechanical reward for, like, the best role player at the table that night? Yeah, I've I've been in those games before. Yeah. Has it ever worked? Uh, it, yes, actually, but I'm, I'm not amazed. sure it would work everywhere. Fair enough. I'm genuinely amazed that it ever worked. It seems like a terrible thing for me, personally. As for players who are behaving badly, not just in the game, you know, not being good role players, but actively being bad players at the table, we've talked about that, again, episode 11, rewarding players who are being good, you know, you say alienating the others, I think that's not something I would worry about too much. I think it's okay to say in front of everyone, Jim, you did a great job with this. I really liked that role playing you did. And it was awesome. You know, if somebody has a bad habit of looking at their cell phone all game and they catch themselves doing it early on, put their phone away and really get involved, go ahead and call them out and say, Hey man, it was really good that you were so engaged today. That was awesome. Keep that up. You know, you you put the phone away, and we all were better for it. 
I think tying it back to the group, not necessarily making it a group award, but tying it back to the fun that we all had because of that good behavior is the way to go. Yeah, and I I think the other thing, too, is verbal praise is a form of reward, right? If somebody does something awesome in game, just say so. Mm -hmm. If that's another player, say so. If you're the GM and a player does something awesome, say so. I've seen you do that in games. I have done that in games that I've run. People love it. The whole group usually enjoys it. I think a lot of the time, as gamers, we get too caught up in... What can I do mechanically to reward this? You know, how can I how can I gamify this thing that I want to encourage in my game? Right. I mean, we're, we're oh, sitting yeah. here playing a game. It's the most natural impulse in the world. Sometimes just going back to normal human social mores works the best. Hey, good job. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think worrying about what the rest of the group will think, you know, I don't want to minimize this, Jim, but I think that's almost a little childish. It feels really middle schoolish. And I know a lot of people are still trapped in that middle school mentality. I occasionally catch myself thinking about that because I am a nerd and sometimes I have had trouble giving that up and remembering, wait a minute, I'm a 33-year-old grown man. (laughs) The terrible memories I have of middle school do not rule my life. Yeah, they are over 20 years away. (laughs) Yeah. But sometimes I think we have that social anxiety even even when we're not in that situation and we're just thinking about it. Don't worry about it. If you're gaming with grown-ups, they'll handle it like grown-ups. And if you're not, go listen to episode 11, where we talk about players behaving badly. (laughs) The other thing that I would throw in there is there are times where it is appropriate to hand out some sort of in-game currency, Benny's inspiration points, fate chips, whatever, for particularly good role-playing, and I don't want to diminish that. I I think one of the problems that at least our group tends to have on a regular basis is forgetting that those mechanics are part of the systems that they're part of. Yeah, it's we true. Just kinda, we just kind of get going and, you know, we're like, wait a second, this game has an economy built into it. That conversation usually happens at the end of the session. You know why we forget it? Hmm. Because we don't have a table and things to track that with. That's true. We don't have inspiration points to, like, hand out and put on our character sheet. We don't have a fate chip economy floating around the table. Uh, It's one reason I'm thinking we should switch to Roll20, just so that I can... We can have icons, if you will, and I can flag stuff. Yeah, that would be a good idea. It would certainly give us a certain level of visibility that we don't have at the moment. Yeah. The other thing that I would suggest as kind of a final note on this is if somebody has been really doing well in game for a while and has been contributing a lot and their contribution has been very positive in game or out of game. Yeah. You may want to talk to them about what can be done to make that even more of a virtuous cycle. How can we give you more hooks in the story? So you have more to latch onto and continue to do this, or how can we give the other players hooks in the story that you can use to pull them in with, or Mm -hmm. What can we do to to help you with, you know, all this wonderful cooking that you do for our group every week? Do you know, want to do like a potluck or something? Right. Whatever it is that's wonderful, try and figure out what you can do where everybody else can get involved in intensifying the wonderfulness and go from there. You know what I would do? Let's say it is something like Don's been cooking for us every week. It's not always, you know, the most amazing food in the world. Sometimes it's mac and cheese with, you know, ham and veggies thrown in. But it's dinner, and he's providing it out of pocket. That's cool. Talk to the other players and say, hey, Don's been doing this, and this is really awesome. Why don't we all chip in, 
and get him something to thank for that. Or why don't we say, hey, Don, don't worry about dinner tonight, and we all bring dinner and do a potluck thing like you suggested. To have all of us together thank him for what he's been doing. That rewards him, and it also reflects it back on the rest of the group and implicitly tells the rest of the group, hey, this is awesome. We should all be like this. This is very generous. But rather than alienating the group, it includes the group in that reward. Yeah, I like that. Anything else? No, I think that's about it for this one. Awesome. Jim, great question. Thank you. Yeah, very interesting. If you want to ask a question of us, patreon.com slash saving the game. All right, we've got a interesting and complicated topic ahead of us, and we've got some interesting and lengthy scripture to read. Shall we? Yep. I'm going to let you take Isaiah, and then I'll take Matthew. Okay. This is Isaiah chapter 29, verses 13 to 16. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Therefore, once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish, the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, Who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, You did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, You know nothing? And this is Matthew seven twenty one to 23 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the, ones, only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And finally, we have another verse from Matthew, Matthew twenty three thirteen to 15 Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Okay, so... For a religious villains topic this week, I do have a spoiler warning for a video game, Pillars of Eternity. Really good video game. Go play it. Stop the podcast. Go play it if you haven't. It's going to take you about 70 hours, but it's real good. Have you finished it yet or? No, I'm really bad at games like that. I gave up because I bombed repeatedly on easy mode. Ah, we'll have to talk off the mics. I have some advice for you on that, but. Do you have cheat codes? Because that's the only way I'm getting through this. (laughs) No, but I, I have some I have some good tactical and build advice, probably. <laughs> Fair enough. Also, I, I will caution those who are about to play it in addition to being long. It is also very sad. So just kind of be ready for that. Yeah, but you should enjoy the music because some of the music and instrumentation was done uh, by the guy who's a friend of ours and who did the uh, music for our show, the opening and closing theme, Ryan Humphrey. Did he do that uh, old song track by any chance? I don't know if he actually wrote the music. I know he did the instrumentation, picking the uh, instruments and samples that are used for the score. There's this wonderful, sad violin track that I literally bought the soundtrack just to have a copy of. Fair enough. All right. So, yes, let's let's get into our topic here because this is a big one and we've got a lot to discuss. So, yeah. So religious villains. This actually came out of a discussion with one of our listeners. 
a mutual friend of yours and mine, Noble Bear, was talking to me about one of the villains from the Luke Cage show on Netflix, who quotes a lot of scripture and stuff. And the idea for this, while not super closely tied to that conversation, definitely bloomed out of it. So I wanted to give him a shout out and some credit where it's due. Yeah, good call. And Noble Bear, Booter, buddy of ours, awesome guy, uh, gives the best bear hugs at cons, let me tell you. Also a great artist. If you've seen my yellow golem avatar around the internet, he drew that. Right. But enough praise for other people. Let's talk villainy. Yes. It's kind of a funny topic for us as Christians, because very often as Christians, we equate religious with good. Now, not everyone does. I understand that. But that's often the headspace we are in. So let me pose a tricky question for you, Peter. How do you end up with a Christian villain? Well, all you have to do is look at how people have misinterpreted or poorly followed the tenets of their own faith throughout history, and you've got all of the inspiration you need. Okay, good. I think it is safe to say that you and I would believe somebody who is a good Christian, somebody who really follows Christ to the very best of their ability, puts that faith into good works, could almost never be a villain. Yeah, it's not, they're almost mutually exclusive. I mean, if you have somebody who is charitable and humble and you know, all of these other virtues that we talked about in our right. series on the seven deadly sins and seven heavenly virtues and the Beatitudes and the Ten Commandments and everything that we have done, will do, and is discussed in Scripture, that's pretty much mutually exclusive with any kind of evil or villainy. It, it's, it's a set of principles that's basically designed to bar that from your daily behavior. Now, fortunately for those of us when we are creating stories, nobody is perfect at following that. Yes, that's exactly right. And as such religious villains, and we're going to kind of start with Christian villains. Yeah. This is not exclusive to Christian villains, let's be clear. But no. part of the, the reason these work so well is that they are frustrating. Because we look at it and say, but we know that's not right. Yeah. For a sobering and gruesome example, I remember listening to Dan Carlin's Prophets of Doom on his Hardcore History podcast. And yes. listening to just... All of the different ways in which a couple different types of Christianity just went horrifically, gruesomely, and cruelly bad. And just like, how? Yeah, that was a fascinating episode. Yeah, unfortunately, I will never be able to unhear certain parts of it, particularly at the end, but it was definitely fascinating. Yeah, I'll try and link it. I, yeah, but definitely, like, ooh, that is not for the faint of heart. I mean, his podcast generally isn't, but that one is especially not for the faint of heart. Right. Anyway, how do we end up with a Christian villain? Or a religious villain more generally? I think we have to start with religious leadership, and what I would say is a fouled-up form of religious leadership. A religious leader in error in some way. Yeah, somehow corrupted or... Um... Or in the wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And the most appalling and glaring and frustrating form of this is hypocrisy. Now, none of us are perfect. No. And it is certainly not fair to expect even religious leaders to be perfect in every respect. Pastors are subject to the same sinful thoughts and feeling as all the rest of us. Yeah. A priest struggles with the same issues. Now, they have training and have a community that helps support them. At least one would hope. That's not even always true. That's not always true, but we hope that they do. And they are called to ministry, usually, because they want to teach and bring Christ to others. Because of that, because of that role they have stepped into, 
hypocrisy is even more frustrating because we look at it and say, but you don't do this either. How, yeah. ca- how can you correct me when you can't even do it? How is it you're trying to get the sawdust out of my eye when you have the sequoia log in yours? Right. Now, this often appears in conjunction with these other villainous traits that we're going to talk about. But hypocrisy is the flavor that makes it so appalling. And I want you to keep that in mind as we talk about all the rest of these. Yeah, definitely. Now, the simplest form of error, I would say, is heresy. And I say simplest because that's, in many ways, the least emotional. This person is simply wrong about something. They misunderstand, they have misconstrued, they have come to different conclusions, they have been influenced by something else. And this is doctrinal. So you end up with a villain who is leading people astray, but not because they are cruel or leading out of fear, but because they are simply wrong and they are teaching people the wrong thing. Yeah, they are, they are sincerely convinced of something that is not true. Now, that may have horrible consequences Yeah, in the worst case, but it is something that can perhaps be corrected. So that's probably the mildest sort of villain. It's, it's a great one for a dramatic showdown rather than some, you know, violent fantasy showdown or confronting the corrupt pope in his quarters or, or what have you. Yeah. Something like that would be great for a, a drama system style game where it's an argument and I am trying to convince you that you are in the wrong and you're trying to convince me that you are right. This tense scene of back and forth, that would be really cool. Well, and I mean, these arguments get large in scale. We talked about the Council of Nicaea on this very podcast a few episodes back. Of course, and they get heated and there's a ton of emotion. Like, we're not yes, saying and... these are not dramatic. The emperor threatens people with death, and yeah. Right, but you're not going to see this as somebody who is horribly corrupt. Yeah, this may be one of the more sympathetic of this particular type of villain. That's, I think, what I'm trying to say. Because they sincerely believe what it is that they are espousing, they are just espousing the wrong thing. Right. Let's talk about that, and we're going to skip ahead very slightly here on our outline. There are people who do not sincerely believe what they're saying. Maybe they tell themselves they do, but they're really using religion as a sort of cover or justification for something they really want to do anyway. Yeah, and it should be noted that this is not the same thing as struggling with doubts. This right. is this is a little bit further down that same spectrum. Yeah, And absolutely. by a little bit, I mean close to the end of it. There have been innumerable wars that serve the state perfectly well, justified through faith. Yeah. There have been plenty of very strange and stupid decisions made throughout history because somebody said, well, God wants what I want. Isn't that convenient? I'm thinking particularly of the Fourth Crusade, where Europe launched a crusade and ended up sacking Constantinople, the largest Christian city in Europe at the time. (laughs) Well, and it also bears mentioning that because God is redemptive, this can sometimes lead to schisms which turn out okay in the end. The Church of England has some rather dubious origins, but it and its offshoots are... Let me let me put it to you this way. My, my money is where my mouth is here, because I am a Methodist, and that's an offshoot of the Church of England. They have produced a lot of very sincere Christians who do a lot of charitable work and very sincerely try and follow the tenets of the faith. Right. So just because something happens for initial reasons that may not be so good, like a king wanting a divorce and the Pope not giving it to him, doesn't mean that everything that follows after is... It's not like evidence in the American justice system. There's no fruit of the poison tree here. Consequences 
sometimes have a way of turning out in unexpected ways. That's a good point. But I do want to emphasize that often it can be, well, I'm just using religious rhetoric to cover or excuse what I want to do anyway. And that's a fantastic villainous trait because it forces the conversation into that religious language where they feel they have an advantage. Now, that may not be true, and it would be great if you could turn that against them, but it's, it's a powerful technique and well worth using when you're designing a villain like this. Yeah. There's another sort of related way that you can end up with a very fouled up sort of religious leader, and that's extremism, where maybe their doctrine starts off okay, but something happens and they take one or a couple tenets too far, much too far, and often they lose sight of the rest of the religion that they follow and focus very heavily on these particular things. This often ties back to what we just talked about, where they're using this very extremist form of religion to justify behavior that they would otherwise want anyway. But sometimes they actually believe it, and that's when they really get scary. I think most of the time they do believe it, but they happen to believe it because it is convenient. Yeah. It's not just, I'm just saying it because it's convenient. It's, I genuinely believe it. I would not believe it if not for my own internal mistakes, and I have bought so heavily into it that I am fanatical about it. Now, this often tends to lead to violence because extremism cannot tolerate anyone else who doesn't follow this extremist form in most cases. Not all, but in most cases, it's very fanatical and is a my way or the highway sort of religion. <laughs> or a my way or the grave sort, even. Well, yes, but we're mangling metaphors badly enough as it is. Fair enough. I'll give the English language a break. Please, please. <laughs> it's struggling enough. <laughs> and that sort of ties back into fear in some ways, because very often these extremists are afraid of anything that challenges this very strict worldview that they have created. And that fear breeds anger, which then turns into violence, and this becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. Right. Fear can also take another more insidious and less terrifying form though and you will see a lot of this particular kind of uh, villainy inadvertently often in modern american christian churches where you get a dependence on the status quo and an aversion to risk and change and you'll see churches a lot where like risky or unglamorous charitable actions get shot down where visitors that don't fit the brand that the church has for themselves will get the cold shoulder or turned away at the door even the church becomes a country club basically and it becomes about what can this organization do for its own members and it turns its gaze away from the wider world that it's supposed to be ministering to and reaching out to and loving and being compassionate towards and it's just like nah we're our own little society we take care of our own we're gonna do what's good for us and everybody else can fend for themselves yeah it's a very cold sort of fear as opposed to the hot sort that you get with extremism. Yeah, good point. Now, I think the classic example we all know and love, especially of the, the hypocrite, is Frollo from The oh, Hunchback of Notre yeah. Now, I think we're all more familiar, let's be honest, we're all more familiar with the Disney version than Victor Hugo's novel. Yeah. The novel is very good. I haven't read it. Just Nope, saying. me neither. <laughs> <laughs> it's big. I haven't had the time. Maybe after I finish working my way through Shakespeare. 
I need to read some Victor Hugo one of these days. I've I've liked all of the media that has been inspired by him that I've seen. I really need to sit down and dig into the source material. It's excellent. But we all know Frollo. And I'll you know what? I'm going to link a video of that wonderful Disney song, Hellfire, the darkest Disney song ever written. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I think it illustrates this perfectly. It's hypocrisy. It's this sort of justification, this pride in one's own righteousness. It's everything toxic about a religious villain. And, and it's also it, wrapped around the self-loathing that you often see in the, mixed in with this. And it's it's very authentic. It is very authentic because there are these hints of self-loathing and knowing that he is a sinner. And rather than looking for God's grace... He pushes that away and demands that God give him what he wants rather than asking to be shown how to follow God and do what God wants. Yeah. It's very powerful. Uh, another example of this, and this this is not an example that I can really link you to because this is an NPC I designed ages ago. But I kind of want to talk about them because I think it's such a good illustration of extremism and fear. Okay. I have to talk a little bit about mechanics, because this came out of a mechanical design problem for Dungeons & Dragons 3.5. All right. How do you make a religious villain who uses positive energy to be a danger for the party? It's a tricky question, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I could start giving you a lengthy answer because I hung out on some of those forums too, but right. well, go and, on. And here's <laughs> the mechanical answer. In 3rd uh, edition... The positive energy plane had this weird effect where it started adding temporary hit points to you when you were on it. And once you got, I think, as many or twice as many temporary hit points as your actual hit points, you exploded. Yeah, you'd, you'd basically just build up all this extra health until you popped like a grape. It was very weird. It was very weird. And I had this cool idea of, well, how could I turn that into a combat encounter? And I was heavily involved in Eberron at the time, and it had... One of the splat books had this cool thing where you basically could sort of channel a plane around a, a caster uh, because it was it's a very planar-oriented setting. There are zones where planes overlap in the world and that sort of thing. It's cool. I love it. Yeah, it's not quite Planescape, but it, it gets close in some places. In some ways. and it, But it was this cool thing where this guy could make a area around him be like whatever plane he was in or what he was tied to, right? And so I had this cool idea. What if there's a cleric who puts that effect, you know, in the encounter and then starts dealing constitution damage to lower people's hit points so that they would explode faster because they had fewer hit points and the more temporary hit points they had, the faster they would explode. Yeah. Nasty fight, right? And it yeah. kind of flips it around because it's, no, I have to hurt myself to stay in the fight. And then when the fight's over, those temporary hit points wear off and I'm badly hurt. Yeah, so I liked the idea, okay? And and I know we're getting mechanical, and we try not to do that, but it's important to kind of describe where this came from. Because th once I had designed this, I then had to look at it and say, so who is this guy? And what I came up with was somebody who had basically conquered a major city because it had a massive infestation of the undead. The undead were a huge problem. And he gained this ability through some means. I hadn't really come up with exactly why. I was thinking Eberron, but this could be used in almost any setting. And by the way, if you're listening to this, please feel free to steal this guy in any way, shape, or form. I'm not going to be able to use this anytime soon. Go nuts. But the idea was, this was somebody who had, had come up from somewhere to deal with this terrible plague of undead that had been plaguing this city or country, a small city-state kind of thing. 
those abilities would be very useful for that. You can basically just incinerate them if you've got enough positive energy at your disposal. And so he becomes the scourge of the undead, and it goes to his head, and he's revered, practically, as the savior of this city. And he roots out all the undead, and then he starts rooting out all the necromancers that had summoned the undead, and all the people who maybe knew about them, and maybe who weren't diligent enough about cleaning the city of the undead. And it just goes downhill from there, and he becomes this religious tyrant, creating this theocracy with himself as the head. Yeah. And that was the idea that I'd come up with. And you have this fear, right? You have this fear that the undead will come back, and this anger at them, and this drive toward extremism because, you know, why can't you all see what I see? And so it turns very toxic very quickly. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty chilling. <laughs> now, it has no place in the game that we are running right now, which is why I'm saying, you know, go nuts, guys. It's, yeah. it's fine. If for no other reason, then a lot of those mechanics don't even work that way anymore in 5th edition. Well, yeah, of course. But I liked, the, again, the mechanics aren't even the point so much as, imagine somebody who is the scourge of the undead or some other thing like that. Just being near him, undead burst into holy fire and disintegrate. Okay, cool. Now imagine that that goes to his head and he goes crazy with it. That's interesting. I have played a character who had that capability, but didn't go crazy. That was the uh, archangel I played in the epic level game that that group tried once. And I, I like the idea that this is a human who just can't handle that kind of power and responsibility properly. And you know, actually, it's probably worth mentioning that a lot of the time, these types of villains work better as humans, because we humans are corruptible and fallible and, you know, imperfect in a variety of ways. I mean, yeah, you can have fallen angels or even gods themselves can cause problems, and we'll get into some of that as the episode continues. But I think humans and humanoid races really function best for especially the ones that are based around fear, the extremism, or the um, kind of cold indifference that that provides is a very human trait. If Frollo turns out to be a demon wearing the clothes and skin of a human priest. All of his impact goes away. Yeah. It steals all the power, and you're just gonna feel cheated. We lose the pathos of Frollo or any other villain like that if it turns out, oh, there's no pathos here after all. Okay, so now we've got the, the stereotypical fantasy example, where you've got figures in evil or wrong religions. So this is like the classic, you know, death god cult and stuff. You, you get, you know, these evil people in masks and red robes with daggers and, you know, skulking around and sacrificing people and blowing up monuments and all kinds of other sinister evil things. And sometimes this is monsters worship terrible things, okay? Yeah. Sometimes it's cults hiding on the edge of civilization. My favorite example of this, honestly, is not Lovecraft, although I think that's the go-to for everyone. It's actually Dead Space's Unitology. Oh, yeah? Have you ever played Dead Space? I played a little tiny bit of, I think, the first one. I think okay. I've got all three games through various bundles and stuff, but I have not played through them. Fair enough. For me, I cannot play horror games. I have anxiety issues as it is, okay? <laughs> Jump scare games are not my friend. But I really enjoyed watching other people play them as actual plays on YouTube, and this worked out really well. Unitology, which is kind of a thinly veiled... Scientology, let's be honest. They are a cult-slash-sort-of-growing-major-ish religion out in space, and their followers are a little bit crazy because they're all really obsessed with 
certain artifacts that some other alien race left behind, and they kick off the space zombie alien infestation because it turns out those artifacts are intimately tied to the horrible, crazy space alien zombifying... Monster things. The monsters of the game. And as such, you get this weird fanatic worship and symbiosis from the true believers who say, I mean, that thing cut off my buddy's torso and grew six extra tenderly arms out of what remained. Yeah, I want that. That seems great. That seems holy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty creepy. But that's my favorite weird wrong cult where you go, come on, guys. Are you not paying attention? Yeah, you are lunatics. Yeah. One of the most interesting and kind of unique cases of this that I can think of is the whole government religion society based around the Lord Ruler from Mistborn. Mm-hmm. Now, this is another area where there's going to be some spoilers involved. So, I don't know, give yourself a minute or two and you should be fine. But he and his followers follow an actual god, but they, including him, don't necessarily realize that the god in question isn't him. It's this destroyer deity called Ruin in that setting. Yep. And he's kind of an avatar of it, sort of. Yeah. It's a little complicated. I would suggest reading the book. Yeah, they are excellent books they yep. that is one of my favorite trilogies of written word of all time it is amazing you know it's telling that there are several of brandon sanderson's works that would fit our bill here yeah sanderson likes to to play around with these themes in his writing so it's not terribly surprising warbreaker has some of this where you have somebody who is a devout worshiper of the gods of that particular book and setting who is also fighting against them. It's complicated. And then Hrathen from Sanderson's first book, Elantris, is an amazingly sympathetic villain. Uh, He has a a good heel-face turn at the end. He is a devout worshiper of another god, the god that the protagonists do not follow. And he is very opposed, and in fact will be violently opposed, to the protagonists. But he does it because he genuinely believes, once his job is done everything will be better, including for the people he opposes. And that leads into our last character, Durrance from uh, Pillars of Eternity. And it's it's telling that I'm talking about this particular character because uh, out of all of the companion characters available in that game, he was the one whose personality I could stand the least. I found just about everything that he said throughout the entire game to be chafing. Just to be clear, was this the Plague Dwarf? This was the... The Priest of the Fire Goddess. Yeah, Burning Plague Dwarf, gotcha. Yeah, although he wasn't a dwarf. He just had a beard. Yeah, he reminded me of a dwarf, that's why I'm thinking. Yeah, he was a human. Um, It's interesting because I I hung on to this particular NPC follower for mechanical reasons. He had a very good list of spells. And so I kind of got stuck with this guy that I couldn't stand throughout the game. And at the end, it turns out that he's actually been betrayed by his own goddess and he vows to hunt her down. It's a very interesting and tragic kind of end of the arc for this particular character, who is a bit of a zealot and does not exemplify what I would consider to be a properly religious character for anything based on Christianity. But then again, he's also following a fire goddess instead of anything vaguely resembling the Judeo-Christian god. So that kind of makes sense. But yeah, it's he's a very interesting and 
somewhat troubling and ultimately kind of tragic figure because his own god has betrayed him even though he is a cleric and that is where kind of the end of this particular like evil slash wrong religion thing can come in where you might have somebody who is genuinely sincere but then their deity is hiding things from them or changes something around on them or something like that and that just makes the person snap or if not the deity their church yeah the religious organization and that can go back to the the cold fear example that we used at the beginning Mm -hmm. so there's another category that we've got here and this one actually has one of my favorite religiously themed villains at the end of it which is lay people who use religion as a cover or excuse and we talked about this a bit when we were talking about justifications But we were mostly talking about that in terms of the clergy or its equivalent. You also see this with, well, let's be honest, most of us. But when we're talking about a villain, we're talking about taking this and ramping it up all the way. Turning the knob up to 11. Maybe even 12. There's a villain called Diamondback in Luke Cage who quotes a lot of scripture. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, a discussion with him with about him with one of our listeners was kind of the genesis of this. He is an interesting example in that he seems to, at least in most of the episodes I've seen, and I haven't quite finished the series yet, so there may be some revelations coming that I haven't gotten to, but he seems to almost use scripture as just an intensifier for his intimidation tactics. Uh, He reminds me a bit of Samuel L. Jackson's character in Pulp Fiction that way, in that he's quoting an ancient book that a lot of people hold dear in order to make what he is doing seem scarier seems scarier and to a certain degree justify it a little yep. bit but it it's very often just an extra hammer yeah on the other side you have and it's interesting we're going back to that gangster mentality here the corleone family from the godfather series devout yeah. catholics violent gangsters yep <laughs> they're designed that way as characters because you have an interesting contrast yeah and particular Vito, the father, the Marlon Brando character, is a very complex and highly sympathetic villain <laughs> in that he is he is very honorable and it seems like he is trying to be the best person he can be and still be a crime boss in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like, intentionally trying to be the best person he can be without giving up the fact that he's a crime boss, much more so than even like a Johnny Marcone from the Dresden Files or something. I would say that he is a benevolent person who will not give up the resources of malevolence in a lot of ways. Right. It's interesting that this is sort of the crime, the villainy, that Pharisees would accuse Jesus of. And you see this throughout Scripture, where they look at Jesus and say, aren't you just quoting Scripture to cover yourself? You say you want this, but look at these things that you do. There's that conflict there where that's the perception of Christ because they don't understand. Yeah. They're coming from a very legalistic, power-driven sort of religion. Rather than, yeah, a love and mercy-based one. Yeah, and they don't, they're not looking past that to the essence of what God wants our relationship with each other and with God to be. Yep. And then there's, then there's probably one of my favorite examples in here, and that's uh, the character Carnegie from the Book of Eli. Uh, This is the Gary Oldman character, the villain of the movie, who is trying to find a Bible because it's successfully been used as a weapon in the past and a indoctrination tool. If you haven't seen the movie, it's very worth seeing. Uh, It is a bit violent, but Denzel Washington and Gary Oldman, how can you go wrong? So (laughs) one of the better post-apocalyptic movies I've seen, too. But he is 
all the way over on the cynic end of things. Um, he has not a shred of genuine faith or belief in him and even kind of admits it, although not quite explicitly, but um, it's pretty apparent by everything that he says and does throughout the movie that he just wants scripture for its utilitarian purposes because he's trying to become more of a warlord. He's trying to amass power and religion as a lever you can pull on in people's minds. Interesting. So what makes this sort of villainy work in our games? Why does it work so well? Why do we hate religious villains so much and want to bring them down? So many reasons. Okay. Shall we start with the most obvious? Yeah, let's... Outrage. Yep. We as players, as people, we get so annoyed and so frustrated by hypocritical claims of moral superiority. Now, this is only true when we are not the ones making those claims. Let's be clear. And we all do it. Yep. It's a problem. We all know it. We all ask forgiveness for it. There's a reason we pray and say, forgive me, Father, I have sinned. Yeah, or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Right. And there's a reason we have to repeat that every week, at least. But there's something so infuriating about hypocrisy, and that goes straight through the character all the way into the player. It's one of those things that immediately will motivate players, a whole table full of people, regardless of what the characters on the table actually are supposed to do. Yeah, if you want if you want to spark some genuine moral outrage in your player group against a villain in your game, this is a good place to start. Absolutely. Fear is another one. Religious hierarchies can be very powerful organizations, and if your villain is highly placed in one, they may be scary because they can draw on tremendous resources, social, political, military sometimes, military in some ways, financial. Yeah. And religious. They may have a spiritual weight and authority that scares people. You see that with Frollo. You see that with Richelieu. Yeah, and this is equally scary if the hierarchy that they are placed in is as bad as the villain, or if they're not. If you have somebody who is very corrupt, who has managed to fool a bunch of well-meaning good people under them into doing bad things, that is really scary because then you have to be especially restrained with their minions while they don't play by the same rules. This plays exceptionally well into violence. The religiously violent often feel especially justified and are often especially cruel as a result. Crusades and Inquisitions come to mind. This goes back to that podcast that we recommended with some cautions at the beginning of the episode, if you want to see just how bad this can get. Mm -hmm. There's also a certain element of cautionary tale to these types of villains. Uh, If this person is sincere in their faith, it can be about pride and arrogance and the depths to which those can make you fall. Or, if the villain is a manipulating cynic without any genuine faith, it can serve as a warning about being careful whom you follow. Yeah. And somewhat related to that, you can end up with a sympathetic villain. Obviously, there are plenty of villains we love to hate. But you can also use this to create somebody who does awful things, but for understandable or maybe even well-intentioned reasons, and who the players then have to deal with without necessarily saying, well, we're going to draw swords, roll initiative, and handle this problem the way player characters from the 1970s on have handled every problem. At sword point. (laughs) Yeah. It creates a more complicated situation, and that's necessarily more interesting because your players will have to work around it and spend time deciding what to do. At the very least, even if they do decide to go the old-fashioned way, as it were, it's going to make them think about it more as they're getting to that point. And of course, you can up the drama by 
having an argument before then. Have the villain say, look, this is what I'm trying to do. Fight me if you have to, kill me if you must, but you're responsible because I'm doing it for these reasons. Yeah. Always exciting. Yep. There are a few pros and cons. We love our pros and cons. You know us. Yes, we do. Okay. Peter loves his pros and cons, but I buy into him. It's fine. A couple of cons. These elements can get uncomfortable or upsetting in play. They don't always, but they can. And they can they can get very intensely uncomfortable and upsetting sometimes. Very true. Moral dilemmas created by characters can feel very personal. We've talked about lines and veils. This is not the kind of thing people will think of when they're talking about lines and veils, unless it's something where it's like, you know, I don't want sexual assault to be a thing in our game, that there's just no room for that in any game I'm playing. That kind of rules out somebody like Frollo, for example, yeah. where it's, oh yeah, I'm just gonna um, threaten to burn this person at the stake unless she gives into my lusty ways. Yeah. You know, that's incredibly uncomfortable, and that very much crosses that clearly stated line. I still can't believe they managed to get a G rating in that movie. Uh, they were very close to PG, but it's Disney. Disney managed to talk the ratings system out of it. Just looking at it and watching it myself, I think that is a PG-13 movie that got a, P a G rating. But anyway. It's PG. But turns out when you have run the tables on animation for decades, you have a little pull. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, our point is be sensitive. Yeah. Be careful not to mock someone's sincere faith. That's something I think we're all careful of, right? Yep. Especially if you have a table where there are people who are... Of differing worldviews. Well, of differing worldviews, or let's say it's a table that's entirely Christian, but there's a very conservative Southern Baptist, a very liberal... Church of Christ member? Yeah, and, and you know, somebody like me, very mainstream. If you create a religious villain, it may feel like you're picking on one of those people at the table. Yeah. Even if it's implicit. Be careful of that. This is one of those times where I think if you are worried that you're going to start treading on toes that way, trust your instincts and pull back before it even gets to the table. Right. There are very, very few religions where everybody is like their worst caricatures. Yeah. There are very few organizations of any sort where that's the case, to be perfectly honest. There are players and GMs who like moral clarity in their storytelling. Very often, these sorts of characters introduce shades of gray. Yeah, even if the character themselves is dramatically evil, or that they're a very black shade, morally speaking, they will tend to create kind of these eddies of grayness around them, mm -hmm. particularly if the religion that they are co-opting for whatever it is that they're doing nefariously is normally benign. Uh, so just kind of be aware that it will have that effect on your storytelling and your world. And that can be something that you either want or don't want, but know that it will do that. And lastly, you're going to have to work hard. Yeah. Sorry. If you want this to feel authentic, if you want this to be powerful, you're going to have to create someone other than a cackling, mad villain in a cassock. Yeah. If you want a simplistic bad guy, necromancers and bandits still exist. Get yourself a dragon. Or an owlbear. Or any number of other nasty monsters out there. Yeah. Now, pros... Remember what we just said about having to put a lot of thought into this? That's because you've got a dramatic, interesting archetype with a ton of narrative weight and a ton of complexity who will draw your characters in, and you'll get a great story coming out of any confrontation and dealings with this character because it will be awesome. 
Yeah, and because you have put a bunch of effort into it, because you have to, you will have put a bunch of effort into it, and it will be awesome. Yeah. I know that's tautological, but that's kind of how this works. The more you put in, the more you get the out. The more you get out. Exactly. Likewise, remember how we were saying you're going to be exploring some personal, moral, and religious issues? Oh no, you're exploring personal, moral, and religious issues. Isn't that awesome? You know, I noticed as we were making the outline, and I actually put a little note in here to remind me to bring this up, we talk about doing this as a player a lot, right? I mean, almost every episode, I would say. As a GM, you mean? No, as a player, exploring the personal, moral, and religious hang-ups. We talk about doing that as a player a lot. You know, you're, okay, I'm going yeah. to play this character who explores this or that thing that I'm grappling with. We almost never talk about doing it as a GM because the GM represents an entire world. They have a much wider cast. That's true. We don't have a character for the GM. Yeah, sometimes that can be an asset where it'll allow you to kind of pull stuff out for a little while explore some aspects of it, see how people react to it, and then just put that away and move on to the next thing because, hey, you're running the story. Yeah. You don't you don't have to go quite as all in on it. It, it doesn't have to be the only thing that you're doing with the game and in the way that sometimes a player character will. That's a good point. Last benefit of this, of course, you're creating contrast. You have an evil religious villain. That's a great opportunity to set up a foil and somebody who is a counterpart to that, somebody who is good, who's sincere, who's benevolent, who is everything that your villain is not. Maybe it's a player character. Maybe it's an NPC. Probably an NPC. We know what player characters are like. I've seen them. But... <laughs> hey! <laughs> just saying. Anyway. Look, you can you can stick a, a Francis of Assisi next to somebody like Frollo, and they're going to seem even better by comparison. And, of course, your villain will seem much worse. Yep, because that's how contrast works. I think it's worth it. It's tricky. You're going to have to work. There are all these issues we talked about, but... You can get a lot out of this, and I think what I want to conclude with is don't be afraid of this, just be aware of the issues. Because while there are things you have to be careful of, the value of putting a villain out there, even if it's not a primary villain in your campaign, but somebody who is an antagonist, who your players immediately react to, and who immediately pushes all of their buttons in ways that motivate them rather than shuts them down, cannot be overstated. Yeah. And I think we can probably leave it there, unless you've got any last-minute additions, Grant. Nope, we can close the book on this one. Everything that must be said has been said. We never have to revisit this at <laughs> all, right? No, no, we're never going to come back to this topic or anything that we discussed in the episode, like exploring issues from behind the GM screen. We would never do that. Of but I think we're not. done for this evening. Yes, I think so. We've been talking for a while. Listeners, there's been a lot of edits if you've gotten to this point, believe me. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of interruptions and weird stuff. All right. Well, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Peter appreciates it. I certainly do. We've had a, a couple instances of great feedback over the past couple of weeks, and let me tell you, those really do feel good to get. So for all of you who have sent that our way, thank you. Yeah, and once again, thank you to Noble Bear for giving us the kind of the seed that this topic grew out of. Absolutely. You know the other thing, Peter. Yeah? We're like three episodes away from episode 100. I know. Do we have anything planned for that yet? Uh, no. Should we just do a normal episode? I think we're going to do a normal episode, but we'll be really happy about it because we yeah. made it a hundred regular episodes. So yeah, there I, we think, go. I think that's the way we're going to go. <laughs> if nothing else, it's going to drop really close to Christmas. I'm yeah. not going to have time to prepare anything special. Yeah. But we're nearly there and that feels awesome. And listeners, we could not do that without you. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. 
if you want to follow us on social media, find us, Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Saving the Game. We're easy to find. You can also find us, if you want, there's a subreddit. Uh, it's rdarkdungeons, which is hilarious. It's a subreddit for Christian gamers. And I've been told that it's totally okay to post episodes over there, so if you're a Redditor and you prefer to have your conversations happen over there, subscribe to that subreddit and comment on episodes there. You know, have a discussion with the other people who hang out there. I really need to spend some more time over there. Well, I, I stuck mean, my head in once a little while ago, and it was neat, but I was busy that evening and never really got a chance to dig in. So Yeah, I understand. But from both Peter and myself and everyone who uh, supports us, thank you again. Have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you later, folks. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.